Good morning. Today's reading is from John 17, 1 through 26. It's kind of long, so bear with me. (laughs) When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave to me, and they have received them and have come to you, come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. There you have it. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 17. We read that whole chapter. It's a great chapter, an amazing chapter. Believe is our current teaching series, The Gospel According to John, and the title of this weekend's message is Jesus Prays 
for you. Also grab your sermon notes out. You can follow along. Look at the intro there, the quote. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Isn't that the truth? And guess what? We get a chance to hear Jesus pray for us. We know that God's word is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. These are the very words of God that we've heard this morning, and it's the very presence of God. So indeed, this is Jesus praying for us. John Knox, who brought the Protestant Reformation to Scotland, when he was on his deathbed, wanted John 17 read to him. So here's here's the idea. If the content of John 17 doesn't help you to face the challenges of life and death, then nothing else will. Believe me, this is a powerful text. This is an unbelievable text. So six things Jesus is asking the Father for us. Now, what do you do when you are about to die? You don't talk about unimportant or trivial things. And and so, what are the most important things on Jesus' mind? We've seen that. We've had a front row seat to to hear what is on Jesus' mind. John chapter 13 through 17 is called the Upper Room Discourse. And it's just giving us the heart of God, the heart of Christ for his disciples, kind of preparing them for the future, preparing them to face torture and martyrdom and all kinds of problems and chaos. And so he's, he's poured into their life, and now he goes from talking to them to now talking to the Father on, on our behalf, on his behalf, the disciples' behalf, and on our behalf, as you will see it divided up in this chapter. So what does Jesus most want for you? I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you want to know what Jesus most wants for you? I do. I want to know what he wants most for me. That's what we have here in this chapter. So here's the very first thing that he most wants for us, eternal life. And I've defined this as intimacy with God. Now, the first five verses, Jesus prays for himself, but in praying for himself, he's praying for our eternal life. Verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, and so I love that uh, David Wallace quoted this verse, the very last verse of chapter 16, where Jesus said, I've told you these things before they happen, so that when they happen, you may have peace. In this world, you're going to have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world And I love that. And so he moves from that to he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. What is he talking about here? The hour has come. He's talking about his death, burial, and resurrection. That's what he's talking about here. And then verse 2, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. I need to stop there just for a moment. That phrase is used six times in this text, to all whom you have given him. We know this based on John 6.44. We've studied this idea that John 6.44 says, no one can come to Jesus without God's drawing. We've talked about that. Our relationship with God is always initiated by God. We love him because he what? He first loved us. 1 John 4:19. So he's the initiator in this relationship. We could never discover him, but he has revealed himself to us and he pursues us. John 12:32 tells us that God draws everyone through the cross. But we also know based on John 3:19, not everyone comes. Light has come into the world, men prefer darkness over light. So he's drawing everyone, but not everyone comes 
to Christ. Drawing gets a person to Christ. Faith gets a person in Christ. When you put your faith in Christ, then you enter into eternal life. In fact, he defines eternal life right here in verse 3. And this is eternal life that they may know you. The word know here is not just information, it's intimacy. So that they may know you, that they may have an intimate relationship with you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And then he goes on in verses 4 and 5, I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This prayer gives us a glimpse into the inner life of the triune God. It's quite spectacular. It's amazingly beautiful. From all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been glorifying each other. They've been in this intimate love relationship with one another from all eternity. In fact, we see this happening also, John chapter 16, verse 14, when we studied that a few weeks back, the Holy Spirit glorifying the Son. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all glorifying one another. And so really what we can learn from the triune God, the essence of reality, why do we exist? Why did he create us? What is the essence of reality? It's not achievements, but love and relationships. Achievements can be good, but they can never replace love and relationships. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. So the most important thing, the reason why you exist is for love and relationship with God and others. Achievements are fine, and those achievements need to help to accomplish and, and uh, to make better these, this love and relationship relationship we have with God and one another. And so if you get to the end of your life and have a ton of money and monuments in your name but have no love and relationships with God, family, and friends, you will feel like your life was a waste, believe me. Why? Because there's something inside of us that we realize we were created for more than just accomplishing things, getting things done. We were created to relate to God and to one another. So Jesus is praying to the Father that we would experience this love and relationship the triune God has been experiencing from all eternity. In, in fact, the only way that we can experience that is through the cross. The cross is the apex of the glory of God. Now, why is it only through the cross? Because the Bible makes it very clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Wages of sin is death. We're eternally separated from him. We're on the path of being eternally separated from him, but God sent his son on a rescue mission to redeem us, to rescue us, to reconcile us back to the Father through the cross because there's nothing we could do to achieve that on our own. We were completely and totally hopeless, but Christ did that for us. That's why he's talking about this is the time, this is the appointed time. Glorif may I be glorified, Father. May you be glorified through this. So the cross is the apex of the glory of God. It's spectacular. It's amazingly brutal. We're going to talk about it in a few weeks, but overwhelmingly beautiful because of what he accomplished for us on the cross. And by the way, this is the love relationship that you have been looking for your whole life. This is the love relationship you've been looking for your whole life. You cannot find this horizontally. It's found vertically between you and God, knowing Him. And then out of that, then you, then you get married. Then you have kids. Then you have friendships and, and all of that. Then those will all go much better if you go to Him first and foremost and have your heart filled up with Him. That's eternal life. Now, 
This eternal life, when he says life, the word is not bio for life. It's not biology, but it's zoe, the Greek word. And he's really speaking more than just quantity of life. He's talking about a quality of life. Now listen to me. I say this every week. I'm going to keep saying it. I'm going to keep saying it. There is a quality in life, in Christ, in this eternal life that he, he came to give to us, that gives us a meaning, hope, and happiness, a love, joy, and a peace, and much more that cannot and never can be found on this planet through any other means. Only he gives us this this meaning, hope, and happiness that is beyond your wildest dreams. That's the eternal life that he's talking about here. Hold on just a second. I saw some of you fanning up here. I'm going to crank this down to about 65 here this morning just to... I meant to do that uh, earlier and uh, there we go. I, I got it down to 72 now, so maybe that'll help out a little bit, but you, you guys good with that? Okay, cool. You guys are heating it up over there, right there. Okay. They're, they're shivering over here. <laughs> so they, they, some of them are shivering. <laughs> Make sure you bring a sweater when you come to church. How many have started doing that? It's just, okay. Oh yeah, see, there's a lot of you. Wear a sweater, you got your sweater with you. Okay, so let me say it again. There is love and joy and peace. There is meaning, hope, and happiness that can't be found anyplace else except in Christ Jesus. You guys understand that? And that's one of our biggest struggles is we think we can find it elsewhere, but you can't. This is the eternal life he came to give us. Here's the second thing he came to give us is joy. So out of that eternal life, obviously, we're going to have joy. Now, Jesus prays for the apostles here. So he moves from praying for himself to praying for his apostles his leaders, his disciples. So let me just summarize some of these verses. I'm not going to read them, but verses 6 through 7, Jesus has revealed the Father to them. Verses 8 and 14, he has given the Father's words to them. Verses 9 through 11, he has prayed for them. But look at verse 12. He has kept them safe except for Judas, the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Here's a big question for you. Be careful how you answer this. Did God make Judas betray Jesus? No way. No. In fact, we did a DB clip. Luke uh, Connor did a clip a few weeks ago that talked about that. It's about a five-minute clip. If you're familiar with our DB clips, they're about five to six-minute clips. And so he tackles that question because there are those that believe that. We do not believe that, okay? And so we tackle that. Also, um, I did a sermon uh, about a month or so ago, Looks May Be Deceiving, John chapter 13. I also tackle that issue. So here's what I want you to keep in mind, is that knowing beforehand does not equal determining beforehand. Just just because God knows that someone's going to betray his son doesn't mean that he decrees that. Judas had all the... is, is held responsible for his decisions, as we all will be. He had multiple opportunities to turn back, and I talk about that in that message, in that DB clip also handles that. So knowing beforehand does not equal determining beforehand. Here's the key verse I want you to see, though, is verse 13. This is where we get to joy. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Now, you hear what Jesus is saying? That we're going to have his joy I mean, he's got some pretty phenomenal joy in the Father and the Holy Spirit. 
but we have his joy fulfilled in us. Now, last weekend I spent a lot of time on this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time this morning. You're going to have to go back to that message and listen to it. But the title of last weekend's message was, was this, Sorrowful Yet Always Rejoicing. It was based on 2 Corinthians 6.10. And, and the Apostle Paul there in this text is saying, basically, this is, this is our existence as Christians. That we live in a broken, busted up world, and so there is sorrow. There's no doubt we're not denying that. But in that sorrow, we're always rejoicing. That is not sequential, that sometimes we're sorrowful and other times we're rejoicing. That's simultaneous in our life. We're brokenhearted over the lostness, but we have a hope deep in our heart that we know that God is still in control. He still loves us. He's still working in our lives for our good and His glory. That's that joy that we need to, to hang on to. Key verse from last week in John 16, 20, 22. John 16, 22. So also you have sorrow now. Jesus speaking to his disciples. You guys are sorrowful because I've told you I'm going to go. He even talked about his, his death. I'm, you're going to have sorrow now, but I will see you again. So imagine the sorrow that they had watching their Messiah crucified on the cross. All their hopes and dreams dashed to the, to the ground. And then he resurrects from the grave, conquering sin, death, evil. And so that's what he means. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Do you hear what he's saying? That he gives us a joy that is uncircumstantial, that doesn't matter what you go through, no one can take your joy from you. Now, life is full of sorrow. You guys agree with that? Oh, boy. It's crazy. So how do you keep your sorrow, your grief, from going bad? What do you mean by that, Pastor Ray? Well, this is what I mean, is that our sorrow can go bad by becoming bitterness, self-pity, despair. So how do you keep it from going bad? You've got to have joy in your life. We're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And so what is joy? Let me define it for you. Here's, here's the definition we used last week. Joy is a buoyancy in your life. Life can push you down. It can't keep you down you, because you keep coming up to the surface. Why is that? Because of the pleasures you find in the eternal privileges that are yours in Christ Jesus. So life can, life can beat you down. You can go through tragic situations, but, the, but you hang on. There's this hope of the eternal privileges that are yours in Christ. You find pleasure in the fact, and I could, they're innumerable, by the way, these eternal uh, privileges that we find pleasure in. And I talked about two of them this last week. What's the greatest thing God ever did for us? He reconciled us to himself. What's the greatest thing that God has ever given to us? How about this? Himself. We have intimacy with God. That alone, listen to me, if you understood what you had through Christ Jesus and the level of intimacy that you have with him, you can face anything. That will give you a joy, that will give you a buoyancy to face any problem, difficulty, he will never leave you or forsake you. That alone would be enough, and that's the joy that he gives us. The tendency is that we forget. We have this gospel amnesia that begins to take place in our life. We forget about all that we have in him. And so that's kind of normal sometimes, and so we've got to get ourselves back to this place. We need people in our lives to remind us of that. You need to come to church regularly so that you're reminded of that. You study your Bible, you pray regularly so that you're reminded of that. The opposite of this joy is hopelessness and despair. It's not sorrow. You can have sorrow and joy at the same time. But when you reach a place of hopelessness and despair, that, that's the opposite of joy. He doesn't want you to be hopeless in your marriage or have despair in your life. 
or with anything. You don't need to live there. We have hope in the gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ. The counterfeit of this would be joy based on circumstances. But this is an uncircumstantial joy that we can always have with us. And it's that joy that keeps our sorrow from going bad. So what does Jesus most want for you? Eternal life, joy. Here's the third one, holiness. See if you can see what that means here in verses 14 to 17, and then we'll jump to verse 19. I have given them your word, so that's an important part of our holiness, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, so that's a key phrase, they are not of the world, so we're in the world, but we're not to be of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, has, it, has anyone here ever felt like you wish that Jesus would just take you out of this world? Anybody? Kind of, you ever feel like that from time to time? Yeah. Please take me home to be with you for all eternity. And he says, no, your time's not, not yet, so you've got to hang in there and keep doing what I've asked you to do. So he says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. What does that say? If you're a Christian, you've got a target on you. You have an adversary that's after you. He's going to try to take you down. I'm telling you. He's going to try to take you down. And he's praying for us right here that you would keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world. There's that statement again. So we're not of the world. That's that distinction. That's holiness. Just as I am not of the world. And then he kind of explains what that means and how we live that out. Sanctify them in the truth. The word sanct, uh, sanctify is part of the, the family of words of holiness. And sanctify means to be set apart from sin for Christ. So you're going to live a different kind of a life. You're going to act differently, behave differently, think differently in your life because of Christ's work in your life, because of the truth. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Now let's jump to verse 19. And for, they say, for their sake I consecrate myself. This is Jesus. So he's actually explaining to us how we live sanctified life, not only through the truth, but Jesus did something for us. He consecrated himself that they also may be sanctified in truth. The word consecrate is also part of that family of words, holiness, sanctification, consecrate. And so holiness, so what is holiness? Real quick, turn to the person next to you, see if they can give a definition for holiness. What is holiness? When the Bible calls us to be holy, what is holiness? Real quick, discuss it with the folks sitting around you. If you're not sitting close to anybody, just talk to yourself just for a moment. So if the first thing that came to mind when we were talking about holiness is sanctimonious, self-righteous, holier-than-thou, boring, then you don't understand what holiness is. I'm telling you, holiness is the most exhilarating, exciting, enthusiastic life you could ever live. I mean, it's becoming more and more like Christ. Holiness is about being wholly devoted to Christ. Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly devoted to him, giving your whole life to him, every area of your life to him. At Desert Breeze, we call it being fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. We have a 5G process that we help people through on their journey towards holiness. And we teach a class on that. We just kicked off this last weekend or this last week. So let me ask you this question. How do you come to terms with someone who has wholly given his life for you? As it says right here, for their sake I consecrate myself. He has, he has wholly given his life for us. How do we come to terms with that? 
by responding to him, by giving our life and living our life wholly devoted to him, giving, giving him our whole life. I love what it tells us in Romans 12, 1 through 2. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. I mean, he's just spent 11 chapters in Romans talking about the, the great mercies of God that are out of this world. And he said, man, when you understand what he's done for you, it's just normal for you want to be to live your life as a living sacrifice for God. Then he goes on in verse 2 of chapter 12 of Romans. He says, don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He's talking about living a holy life, living wholly devoted to him. Oh, my goodness, that's the sweet life. That's becoming more and more like Christ. There's not a better life than that life. That's what he invites us to. That's what he wants to do in our life. That's what he's praying for us in this text. And so from this text, we know the church should be a whole a whole different culture than that of the world. The church should be radically different than the surrounding culture. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely, based on what Jesus is praying. And so here's another key verse that helps us to understand how this holiness takes place. If you've got your Bibles open, look, at, look back to verse 9 in our text there in the 17th chapter of John. For they are yours. They are yours. As Christians, we belong to God. So what is the bedrock modern, what is the bedrock of modern Western culture? What is kind of the belief, the basic bedrock belief of modern Western culture? Here it is. You belong to yourself, you decide who you are. That's modern culture. Would you agree with that? I mean, we're bombarded with that message. It's all around us. What is the bedrock of Christian culture? You belong to God, Christ decides who you are. So, so we live in a culture today that basically says, nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm my own self. I'm going to live how I please. That's our culture. We applaud that. Yeah, yeah. That's very demonic. Because that's what Satan said to God. You're not going to tell me what to do. And he took a third of the host of angels with him. He was delusional. He was deceived. Don't be delusional, don't be deceived. No, living for God, giving your life to Him. He created you. It even tells us that He paid a price for you. You were bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6.20. Live your life for His glory. That's what you were created to do, to be in this love relationship with God. So whether you belong to yourself or to God will make a major difference in how you use your body, spend your money, Invest your time, live your life, and relate to others. Would you agree with that? So if I'm living for me, it's going to look different than if I'm living for him. And the best thing we could do is live for him. That's a, that's a great life. That's becoming fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That's, a, that's the sweet life, as I've said. And so here's the key. Here's the key. This is going to sound really crazy, but here's the key to holiness, a life that's wholly devoted to Jesus. Here it is. It's finding your deepest happiness in him. What? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. The key to holiness is finding your deepest happiness in Christ. Because you see, sin is what we do when we're not happy in Christ. Sin is what we do when we're not happy in Christ. How many remember uh, David, 
his repentance psalm, Psalm 51, remember he committed adultery, murder, betrayed his whole nation, confronted by the prophet, so he repents, and in that repentance psalm, in Psalm 51, verse 12, he says this, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Now this is what's interesting about David, is that he didn't sin and lose the joy of his salvation, he lost the joy of his salvation, therefore he sinned. Sin looked attractive to him because he wasn't finding his deepest satisfaction in God. We sin because we think we'll be happier than what God will make us. That's the essence of sin. Sin is what we do when we're not happy in Christ. We sin because it holds out some promise of happiness. That's why people sin, because they actually think they'll be happier rather than living according to what God has said. Holiness is being so happy in Christ that sin loses its appeal. So the most important thing you can do every day is to make yourself happy in Christ. Find your deepest delight in Him. You see, the power of sin's promise, there's a power in sin's promise. We think, ah, if I pursue that, if I get that, if I achieve that, if I have that relationship, oh my goodness, I'm going to be happy. Well, the power of that of sin's promise is broken by the power of God's. That's why he says over and over again, uh, sanctify them in the truth. The truth is, is the reality of the fact that we find satisfaction in God and all that he is for us in Christ Jesus. Your word is truth. The power of sin's promise is broken by the power of God. So holiness and happiness are one and the same pursuit. So when you think of holiness, this is what you should be thinking of is happiness. Oh my goodness, yeah, I want to be holy in Christ, holy devoted to Him. That's where I'll be the most happy in my life. Listen to what Randy Alcorn says from his book titled Happiness. He says, when we seek holiness at the expense of happiness, or happiness at the expense of holiness, we lose both the joy of being holy and the happiness birthed by obedience. God commands holiness, which makes obeying him not only duty, but also pleasure. Okay, so what does Jesus most want for you? Eternal life, joy, holiness, and mission. That's, the, that's the number four. Look at verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So he's talking about mission. As human beings, we need a mission, a purpose. We need to feel we're getting important things done. Now, they've done all kinds of research that's been done here in this, on this area. And if you put pets and plants in a nursing home for the residents to take care of, their life expectancy is extended, residents are healthier, and they will need less medication and drugs. That's what research says. So, so what does that say? That's how mission-oriented we are as human beings. We need to have a sense of purpose. And so Jesus comes along and says, I can give you the ultimate mission. That's what he's saying here. I've come to change the world by my grace and truth, the gospel. Come with me and we'll slay the ultimate dragons and set people free from the ultimate dungeons. That's what Jesus is talking about. This is his mission. And in fact, what were the very last words that Jesus said before he ascended to heaven? So this is post-resurrection, hangs out with his disciples for about 40 days, and before he exits, he says some really important words. Anybody know what it's called? It's called the Great Commission. And it's not just once or twice in the, in the New Testament. It's five times in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, 
Acts. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and doing everything that I, and, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, and behold, I will be with you always, even to the end of the earth into the world. I'll be right there with you. This is what I want you to do. I want you to stay on mission. You need to make disciples. You need to tell people about me. You need to proclaim the gospel. That's what we're to be about. Now let me ask you some questions here, okay? Now the last, uh, last service, they were kind of quiet when I asked this question, okay? I'm just telling you straight up. And last night, they were just really quiet too. And I know this is a very controversial topic. And so let me ask you this question. You can answer. Are politics important? Okay, you guys, you guys are responding a little. Okay, yeah, they're, they're important. They're important. It's important to be in, involved and, and to help to kind of maybe change the political climate and what's going on. Right now, it's really crazy. The climate's really bad. It's really messed up in so many different ways. We'll get into it. But politics are important. But listen to me, not as important as the gospel in making disciples. Would you agree with that? Yes. Okay, whoa, yeah. <laughs> I didn't get that from the other services, so let's pray right now for the people that were in the first service this morning. Okay, we'll pray for them and pray for the people last night. They were kind of, I think they were afraid that I was gonna come down on them. They're like, I'm not gonna respond to that question. This guy is gonna take us out. No, I'm not gonna take you out. I just want us to make sure that we got our priorities straight. So let me ask you another question here. So is, is our economy important? It's good to have a good job. That's good. How about education? How about health care? Religious freedom? Environment? All are important, but not as important as the gospel making disciples. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Woo! That's right. Thank you for responding like that. I was feeling a little like, hey, did I hit a hot button here? Here's, I'm convinced of this, and I've, throughout my life, I'm increasingly, and it sounds crazy because I get older, but I'm increasingly, believe me, I'm increasingly convinced that nothing conquers sin, wipes out shame, heals wounds, reconciles enemies, restores broken dreams, and ultimately changes the world one life at a time like the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, praise God. I'm convinced of that. And so we need to be involved in all those different parts of our life, but they're secondary. Primary is always the gospel in making disciples. Make sense? So sometimes we need a recalibration from time to time because we get drawn into some of the craziness of our culture today. And so as it tells us in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. I'm convinced of that. I believe the gospel can transform people's lives and families and homes and communities and the world. Now, this life-transforming tra- message has been given to the church, which means that the future of people's lives rests in the hands of local congregations like Desert Breeze. So all I'm saying, we've got to stay on mission. We've got to stay on mission. And so what does Jesus most want for you? Eternal life, joy, holiness, mission. And now it gets a little bit heavier right here. Unity. He wants unity. I gave you a bunch of verses there. You can study those on your own as you work through the growing notes this next week. So he goes from praying for himself, then he prays for his apostles, his disciples, and now he prays for us. Look at verse 20. I do not ask for those only or these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. 
We'll believe in him through their word, the apostles' word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me, that the glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. I mean, he said this three times. He's really emphasizing it. Really important. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Now, Jesus is leaving and they are staying. That's us. Jesus has created a group of people who will now represent God in the world the way that he did. And this group of people is primarily made up of local church families like Desert Breeze. Let me prove my point here. When you study through the New Testament, in every place that word church is used, the word is ecclesia, called out ones, 115 times it's used in the New Testament And 92 of those times out of 115, it is speaking of local congregations like Desert Breeze Community Church. 92 out of 115 times. So to me, it seems like in the New Testament, local communities are really important to God, to Christ. So as he's praying for unity, he's praying within local communities, but at large also within the the larger church here in America and in this community with other churches. Our community, our church, local fellowship with other local fellowships. And so here's my question for you. Can you live a good life as Christ would want you to live in the world without being a part of a local church family? What do you guys think? Okay, good. Good answer. That's, That's the right answer. But you need to know that 86% of American Christians believe other than that. They believe that they can be a good Christian without being connected to a local church family. That's unbiblical. And that'll get you killed spiritually. That'll take you down. You can't survive. You have an adversary, the evil one. He's praying He's praying that the evil one doesn't take you down, but he's also praying that we would be united, that we would have a church family, that we'd be a part of that. 86% of American Christians believe that you don't have to be connected to a local church family. So think about this. Anonymity and individuality has seeped into the mindset of a lot of Christians, and that's destructive. You, You think you can freelance this Christian life? You can do it on your own? You can't. It's impossible. No, okay, I got it. I'm preaching to the choir here, okay? You guys are here, okay? Who am I preaching to? You guys are, you guys are here. The people that need to hear this aren't here. For the most part, they think, ah, I don't need a church. I can do my own thing. I, I've got family and friends that are like that. They very, very seldom darken the doors of a local church family. I know a lot of people that I run into from time to time, and they'll say, yeah, Desert Breeze, that's our church. Wait a minute, I haven't seen you like in three, four months. It just, it doesn't make sense to me. It's just like, ah, you're not really connected. And so, so here's my, here's really my logic. 
if at the end of his life, one of the main things on his heart is the church, and in fact, it was one of the main reasons he came to earth was to create his church, a community of followers who would represent him in the world through local church families. Do you think that Jesus would be fine with you not being involved in the very entity that he bled and died to create? No. Do you think that Jesus would be okay with you accepting him but rejecting the rejecting one of the main reasons he came to this earth. Just kind of walking you out, you know, walking you through this logic here. I mean, for you to say, and I've heard people say this, hey, I love the church, but I, I just don't care too much for the church. I love the church. I mean, I love Jesus. I can't stand the church. That would be like coming to me and say, hey, Pastor Ray, I love you, but I can't stand your wife. How do you think I would respond to that? Like, I kind of know how you feel. I wouldn't say that. You guys know me better than that. I would never say that. I love my wife. I love her. I adore her. I would never say that. I'd say, hey, if you don't love her, you don't love me, dude. Or dude, Ed, whoever said it, okay? Whoever you are. I said, that's offensive to me. Well, it's offensive to Jesus. It's offensive to Jesus to say that. And, and, hey, churches are messy. I got it. You need to find a healthy church. You need to know what a healthy church is. But you need to be a part of a, a good, healthy church. You need to find a church and make it healthy. You be there to make it healthy. If it's not very healthy, help, help them to become healthy. Notice I didn't say perfect. You'll never find a perfect church. But you can find a healthy church. And, and that's important for us to understand you can't be following Jesus and not be deeply involved in a local church family. That's not just showing up to church but getting, and getting some inspiration, but it's actually getting involved. So, so when we talk about unity, that is first and foremost within a local church family. But now we've got <laughs> to talk about this unity. Let's define unity. So what does he mean by unity? And so three times in this text, verse 21 he says that they may all be one, verse 22, that they may be one, verse 23, that they may become perfectly one. So here's my definition of unity. See if you can track with me here. It is a bond with other Christians because of what we have together in Christ that is greater than race, class, gender, politics, or non-essential theological issues. Does that make sense? So why is unity so important? Look at verse 23b. So that the world may know that you sent me. So the world won't believe our truth claims unless behind those truth claims they see a community of astounding love and unity. So if we tell them, hey, the gospel, he can transform your life as he's transformed our lives and behind the scenes they see a bunch of backbiting and bitterness and anger and animosity and division and all that, they're not going to believe our message. That's what Jesus is saying. So here's the negative side of this. The honor of Jesus' name is bound up in the quality of our community and unity. So if a local church or Christians within a community among other churches in the community 
are filled with gossip, insensitivity, negative criticism, jealousy, backbiting, unforgiving spirit, clickishness, coldness, selfishness, and failure to welcome people of other races, classes, political parties, or secondary theological issues, then we are making Christ look ugly to the world. In fact, that's an abomination to God. It tells us that in Proverbs 6.19. One who sows discord among brothers is an abomination to God. And let me just say, I have never seen more discord among the brothers in America today than what I see today. And I think a lot of it is this, this social media. I've seen more attacking and divisiveness and hatefulness in the name of God, which is crazy. Because God has nothing to do with that kind of hatefulness and anger and animosity. It doesn't make any sense to me. Here's the positive side of this. It must be possible to have this kind of community, otherwise Jesus wouldn't be praying for it. And I don't know of a human being that doesn't want to be a part of a community that is loving, forgiving, reconciling, warm, and welcoming, at the same time stands for truth. So we still have to stand for truth, but it's how we do it. We should stand for truth in such a way that we are melt-in-your-mouth sweet to the outsider's that they say, I don't agree with them, but man, I don't deny the fact they love each other, they love God, and they loved me. Even in my hatefulness and my anger, they still loved me, but they stood strong in what they believed. See, that's what God has, has called us to do. And let me just say something about Desert Breeze here just for a moment. We are healthier now as a local church family than we have ever been. Praise God. I see such, yeah, praise God. I, I see such unity and harmony and health in this church than I've, than I've seen in a long time. And that's just a work of God. That's a work of God here. And we get a front row seat. So what is the cause of all the divisiveness? What creates this division that we see in, in homes and marriages and politics and all that hatefulness? Would you agree with me there's a lot of hatefulness out in our culture today? It's easy to get drawn into that. Here's, here's where it comes from. The Bible is very clear about this. I gave you a bunch of verses you can study out on your own. But our horizontal conflict, when we have conflict this way horizontally, it's always because I got a bunch of turmoil going on inside of me. It's because of the internal conflict. I'm ugly this way because I got a lot of ugliness inside of me. And I got ugliness inside of me is because I've got turmoil going on between me and God. No matter what I say, no matter what I might say, yeah, I love God, God loves me, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if I, that doesn't calm down the turmoil within me, I'm going to be ugly this way. In fact, the whole book of 1 John makes it very clear. You can't hate your brother and say that God loves you and you love God. He's saying that's a contradiction. That's what that whole 1 John is about. You can't say that. I'm telling you, you live in the reality of his amazing love for you. It's going to calm you down. It's going to help you. You're not going to have the turmoil. You'll have what you most desperately need is the glory and love of God, and then your life, will, he, he will even give you the ability to love your enemies. I mean, he will love you so much, and you'll be so overwhelmed with his love that you can love people that are hateful towards you and come after you and attack you because he'll bring such a peace and a rest. And at times it'll almost be like a flea bite. Oh, yeah, they hate me. They despise me. They want to murder me. Oh, well. God loves me. He adores me. He gave his life for me. Oh, my goodness. That's, oh, my goodness. I can't believe what he did for me. 
And we don't always live there. That's why we all need help and we need to talk about this. That's why we have verses like this that help us through this. So what is it in our human heart that creates so much conflict in our relationships? It's self-righteousness is what it is. It's the need to justify ourselves. If we don't get our justification from God, we will get it from our class, politics, race, looks, money, morals. So here's three signs that you know you're kind of veering off in that direction. That you've, you've misplaced your sense of identity. It's, that is idolatry. You're trying to justify yourself through your class, politics, or race, or whatever. Here's, here's one way that you know. The rightness of your views, or the rightness of your class, or the rightness of your politics, or the rightness of your race gives you an attitude of superiority and elitism. I've seen this even within churches. I've actually, I was, my wife and I were part of a church a number of years ago. They were very elite. They just thought, that hey, we have a corner in the market. Nobody knows the truth like we know it. Everybody else, every church in the community is bad. We're good. That's sick. That's unhealthy. So the rightness of our views gives us an attitude of superiority and elitism. Here's another sign that uh, you're self-righteous and you're trying to justify yourself in something in creation as opposed to the creator and, and that is we become scoffers. We live in a culture of, of sco- a lot of scoffing. We become scoffers who show contempt and disdain for opponents rather than graciousness. So we attack. We see that all the time in, in politics, just vicious attacking, it's scoffing. And then the third thing, so you got uh, superiority and elitism, scoffing, and then the third thing is you look at your emotional response to your class, politics, race, looks, money, when it's being threatened, blocked, or lost, you're going to have this inordinate anxiety, anger, and depression. In other words, you can locate idols by looking at your most unyielding emotions. You find idols by looking at your most unyielding emotions. What makes you uncontrollably anxious, angry, and despondent? Certainly not coming from God. If your identity is centered in Him, you're not going to have inordinate anxiety, anger, and depression. You won't if you're really centered in Him. And so here's the cure to our internal conflict. It's the next fill-in-the-blank, number six. Glory and love, that's what we need. We need our hearts filled up with His glory and love. So it is the byproduct of eternal life, intimacy with God, and the key to living a life of joy, holiness, mission, and unity, glory and love. This is, this is amazing right here, how he finishes up here. Look at verse 22a, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. What? The same glory that the Father has given the Son, he, the Son's giving to us? Look at verse 23b, you, God, have loved me even as you, you have loved them even as you have loved me. So the same love that the Father has for the Son, he has for us? <laughs> That's incredible. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may also may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. I love the quote from J.R. Tolkien. He wrote The Lord of the Rings. He says this, the praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. 
So if someone you respect a little says you're great, it feels good. If someone you respect a lot says you're great, it doesn't just feel good, it feels great. So if I came along and said, wow, you're a pretty good quarterback, that's meaningless, okay? But if Tom Brady comes along and says, wow, you're a great quarterback, you could probably take it to the bank. Make sense? So unless you're esteemed by somebody you esteem, you'll have no self-esteem. When someone you adore adores you, it's like heaven. Here's what you need to know. Here's how we finish it up. The only eyes in the universe that matter looks at you, loves you, gave his life for you, adores you more than all the wealth in this world. Jesus got what we deserved on the cross so that we would get what he deserved, glory and love. All the glory and love we'd ever need. Let me read you a story here. I got this sent to me from Pastor Scott this last week. I think it's a good ending to our time together this weekend. Living in a hard-hearted age is the title of this article. We cannot escape the truth that we live in a cold and hard-hearted age that desperately needs redemption. Therefore, we need the caring love of Christ, a love that must transcend the best love we can muster by ourselves. Years ago, in one of his columns for Christianity Today, Charles Colson tells the, the poignant story of an interview on PBS that demonstrates the power of caring and sacrificial love. In pointing out the limits of our best efforts to reform culture through political activism and persuasive argument, Colson asserts that there is only one way people will genuinely hear the gospel message by observing how the church itself lives. They should see in the Christian community a unifying love that resonates with their own deepest longings and points to a supernatural source. Then he told this wonderful story. The interviewer had an aggressive manner and hard expression under layers of makeup and mascara. How can you be so sure about your faith, she challenged me. I answered by telling her a story of my time behind bars after Watergate when several Christian men stunned me with a quality of love I had never known before. I never forgot that day because one of them, Al Kui, called to say, Chuck, because of your family problems, I'm going to ask the president if he, if you can go home while I serve the rest of your prison term. I gasped in disbelief. At the time, Al was a sixth-ranking Republican in the House, one of the most respected public figures in Washington, yet he was willing to jeopardize it all out of love for me. He was a powerful witness that Jesus was real, that a believer would lay down his life for another. As I retold the story for the cameras, the interviewer broke down and waved her hand saying, stop, stop. Tears mixed with mascara were streaming down her cheeks. She excused herself, repaired her makeup, and injecting confidence back into her voice, said, let's film that sequence once more. But hearing the story again, she could not hold back the tears. Later, she confessed that Al's willingness to sacrifice had touched her deeply, and she vowed to return to the church she had left years earlier. The article ends with this. A Christian community united in love attracts attention in the most jaded culture. The sacrificial and caring love of Christ does offer up the best remedy 
to influence and change the hardest hearts. Next weekend, Betrayal of Jesus, John chapter 18, we'll cover that whole chapter. I'll be up front at the end of the service along with any of our elders that are available. If you are new, we would love to meet you. If you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you. If you have any questions, we'd love to answer those questions for you. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. So Lord Jesus, thank you for revealing to us what you most want for us in this prayer. And because you prayed these six things for us, we know that they are attainable to all who put their faith in you and live their lives for you. We pray that out of this eternal life, this intimacy we have with you, that you have freely given us, filling us with glory and love, that we would become a local church family known for its joy and holiness and mission and unity, all for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name and everyone said... Amen. Love you guys. God bless you.